while we're waiting for the light to come on for the screen, on behalf of my wife Sylvia and myself, we'd like to thank you for arranging this special weekend. I know it's a holiday month and uh, appreciate your desire to hear the Word of God and uh, to invite us and as a church bring us on our way. We appreciate that in the Lord Jesus and, and your care for us throughout the year. Uh, we appreciate and uh, things are small back in Oregon. There's a lot of liberalism, but there, there are believers and uh, the assembly meets in a home, but we have seen through a girl witnessing and bringing a girl out to a Bible study that we have uh, come to faith and she's baptized and she wants to bring other people. So there are some things to encourage and just, you know, when you're reading the Old Testament, you come across the prophet Amos, maybe somehow it'll jog your memory of us. And, uh, <laughs> just lift us up in the work there that we'll be faithful and there'll be a testimony. Uh, it'd be nice to see what you have here, down here up in that area of Oregon. Uh, not to say there's nothing, but uh, just to lift us up. Now, as we come to our last session tonight uh, on the tabernacle uh, in this series, I'd like you to go back to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Uh, the book of Hebrews and chapter 9. New Testament commentary on the Old Testament tabernacle. I'll read these verses here for now, and uh, starting at verse 1. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. That simply means an earthly sanctuary. Verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And so as we look at this tent, this tent of God's dwelling, among his Old Testament people, Israel. Uh, here it speaks of the first room of the sanctuary, and it's called the holy place. And uh, then it goes on to say in verse 3, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. There will be a veil here, a blockade separating these two rooms, and behind this, this gets a different name, the holiest of all. Because as we'll see tonight, that is exactly where God says, I'll dwell. Over the ark, between the cherubim, he told Moses, there I will meet with thee, Exodus 25, 22. So because it's God's actual residing place, it's called the holiest of all. It goes on to say in verse 4 of chapter 9, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. Some of that we talked about Friday night. But back there is the ark with its lid, the mercy seat, looking at verse 5. And over at the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And so it has this lid, the ark of the covenant, a chest, a box, but a solid gold piece with cherubim and their spread wings over it called the mercy seat. Then it goes on to say in verse 6, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest always went into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And we've been spending two or three messages on that. This room number one, the holy place, the priest would go in there once they were cleansed, and we talked about that, and they would accomplish the service of God. We mentioned out here, it was sacrifice for sin, one of the main things. But in here, 
why once you're cleansed, God's now concerned with ministry to him, service for God. We spent a fair amount of time on that, including this morning. But he actually goes further. There's another compartment. We'll see what the main activity here as we develop that tonight. Now, speaking of that, the holiest of holies, room number two in the sanctuary, looking at verse 7. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standard, standing, which was a figure. We've talked about that word figure, Greek word parable. Okay? Uh, parable in the Old Testament as well as the New. Earthly story, heavenly meaning. Tabernacle, big parable. Which was a figure, verse 9, for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers, washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. It's not permanent, the plan of God, this earthly system. But it simply was imposed until the reality got here. Verse 11, But Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And God will bless the reading of His precious Word. Now going back tonight to verse 7, and concentrating here on the holiest of holies here. Uh, verse 7 says, But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. And so we're going to see there, there was a veil blockading it, and the high priest alone, once Moses died, could go in there. And so it turned out to be the most secluded place on earth where the holy God dwelt. It would be one man, the high priest alone, on one day, says there in verse 7, the high priest alone went in every year, one man on one day, and one way he could only go in, not without blood, it says. And so access was very limited, it was the forbidden city, so to speak, that 15-foot square cubicle. One man, on one day, in one way, had access to God. And there was a veil to block everybody else from coming in. And uh, as we go and we read the details of this veil a little bit, act acting as a shut door. You know, uh, sometimes a shut door conveys something, doesn't it? Like a shut bathroom door, you know, stay out, <laughs> don't come in. And it was off limits here for the average priest, never mind the rest of Israel. Uh, uh, there's a veil there. Now, now, talking about that veil a little bit and kind of introducing where we're headed tonight, uh, you can kind of entitle it, How to Come into God's Presence, okay? How to come into God's presence. You know, can you just walk in powerful uh, royalty and so on? Want to try to do that in the White House and see how far you get? Just walk in and say, here I am. It doesn't happen. Guy jumped over the fence, got in big trouble the other day, didn't he? Uh, uh, there has to be all kind of clearance. And when it comes to the dwelling place of God, there are people who have tried. They have tried. And uh, you'll remember this ark here. Once it was taken out and the Philistines took it, it was taken out of the tabernacle, and Israel eventually got it back. And the Philistines departed, deposited this ark, God's dwelling place, in a field in the city of Beth Shemesh. And they were so excited to see their ark there, the men of the field ran up and they lifted up the lid and 50,070 died, like a football stadium. 50,070. 
And Israel asked a question a bit too late in 1 Samuel 6.20. Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Life's greatest question. Who's able to stand before Him in His presence? There was no blood on that ark and there was no priest there that day. And they found out without that they died. Then there was a king, and his name was Josiah, and he was actually a good king of Judah. But as he got powerful, he thought, I don't need a priest. And he said, I'll just walk in here and light the incense myself and do it my personal worship. And I'll bypass the, the mediator, the priest. The regular priest tried to stop him. Even though you're king, you can't do it. And he, he didn't even get in there. He just got right to the veil. And leprosy broke out over his forehead. And he went home and eventually died. And another time the ark was being transported, they, they put it on a cart. And a man named Uzzah was uh, driving the oxen. And going over the rough road, it's... The, 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 the cart shook over the rocky road or whatever, and he thought the ark was going to fall off, and he put his hand to hold the ark up, and Uzzah died immediately. And so you're dealing with something that there's limited access to. It's the holy God's dwelling place here, uh, this, uh, this holiest place, the ark of the covenant with its mercy seat. Now looking at that, let, let's just see a little bit of the parable instructions on the veil and go to the Old Testament to chapter 26 of Exodus. Uh, book of Exodus. We'll be back to Hebrews later if you want to keep something there. But uh, Exodus chapter 26. And I'll take you down to verse 31. Exodus 26 and verse 31. Exodus 26 and verse 31. And thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, there's those four colors, of cunning or artistic work. With cherubim it shall be made. So this veil not only had the four colors, it had cherubim. Now cherubim in the Bible act as like heavenly guardians. Just like a king might have lines carved out on his throne. It's meant to intimidate you that there's power there. You know? And God, remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned so they couldn't come back into the tree of life? You know what he put there? Flaming cherubim with sword. And so they were acting as guardians to what it belongs to God. And so God, over this veil, suddenly puts these cherubim as heavenly guards symbolically that they, really there's no entrance beyond that. Now looking further here in verse 32. And thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of shittim or acacia wood, overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold upon the four sockets of silver. And thou shalt hang up the veil under the tachas or ringlets, that thou mayest bring in thither within the veil the ark of the testimony. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And so here we see... We take a peek behind it. Uh, this would divide. This would act as separation. This would keep out. And beyond it is the Ark of the Covenant with its lid, the mercy seat, where God told Moses right there between the cherubim, there will I meet with thee, and there will I commune with thee. Uh, the dwelling place of God himself. And so we come to this veil that we'll talk more about later, but it was meant simply to, to keep out. Now, now with that in mind, we did learn, especially after Moses died, that only one man had access to it, Israel's high priest. One man, on one day, in one way. We want to look at that. 
You want to look at how that might point us to the work of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so moving here, let's look at that day just briefly here, that one day when the high priest could actually enter in there. He had to do it alone, and he had to do it a certain way. So go with me now to what the Jews call Yom Kippur. The Bible calls it Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and to, it's in Leviticus 16. Let's go to the book of Leviticus uh, chapter 16. Book of Leviticus in chapter 16, please. There you see another picture of the veil, and our, and our, well, that's from our model. And uh, it's right in front of the altar, and it uh, protects the, the holiest of holies. X is a blockade. There's another artist's rendition with the cherubim as those heavenly guardians, and uh, so on. But we now get to uh, chapter 16 of Leviticus, and uh, look at verse 2, please. Uh, this is the Day of Atonement. Uh, chapter 16, verse 2. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil, before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So you tell Aaron there is not free access. He just can't come in every day and say, Hello, I'm here. You know, some of us think that's how we'll approach God. Well, here I am. This parable tells me there has to be extreme clearance to get in. And this man, if he came in any other time, would die. There's a certain way he has to come in. So, so look at verse 3. Verse 3. And Aaron shall come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's going to have to come in with a sacrifice. That is the blood of the sacrifice. He'll have to do it for himself before he was a sinner unlike our Lord Jesus. But then he'll do it for the people. Going down further in the chapter, going down further, seeing how he came into that, go down to verse 14, please. Uh, Leviticus 16 and uh, verse 14. Skipping some details here, but looking at some major points. Verse 14. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his fingers seven times. There's that number seven again, perfection, completion. So he would go in there one day a year, one man alone, and he had to go in with blood. And he would enter that presence of God, and he wouldn't die. Well, why wouldn't he die? As you see there, the Ark of the Covenant, and with those guardian wings of the cherubim, and so on. And uh, well, why wouldn't he die? Well, uh, here's why. Look at verse 15. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do that with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So then what he did for himself, he did for the people with a blood sacrifice that was without blemish. Uh, there is the presence of God, poor facsimile, but it's, it's just illustrating between the cherubim, and he comes in with sacrificial blood of an unblemished animal and sprinkles it on the mercy seat, eastward, and before the mercy seat, seven times. Now on that basis, you have to remember, as we learned earlier Friday night, what was in the ark. Inside that ark, one of the things was the testimony, the law of God, the Ten Commandments. So they're in here. In here you have the law. Here you have the presence of God. Go back to this picture here. Keep in mind the law's in there and God's here. Now here's man coming in. We're, you know, we're told in Romans 3.20 that 
that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Here's the law. Thou shalt not steal. Honor thy father and thy mother. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And there's that law, and that would say, well, they sinned on this day, they sinned on this day. You know, as James 2.20 says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. It just takes one murder to make you a murderer, never mind the other good things you did. One, break one law and you're a sinner, you're a lawbreaker. So in here is a record of God's holy morality, the law, which people broke. And here is the presence of God. And Him representing the people, how will He survive? Well, what's between the law and the presence of God? And these cherubim with their faces downward and their wings covering the ark, the Bible says, they see the blood. And they, they, so to speak, don't go into action. They don't get swords and cut them down. They stay stationary, symbolically speaking, uh, because in between the law, which we've all sinned, and in between the holy presence of God, there is blood. And that's the basis on which he dies, they die not. Look, uh, looking further in the chapter, looking at verse 17, this particular work was a work by the high priest alone. He did it all by himself. And look here at verse 17, please. 16, 17. And there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. No man. He didn't have a helper. He didn't have a Levite. He, didn't have any, he did the work all himself. Took the blood, went into the presence of God, and no man was with him. He did it alone. Now, now with that in mind, Go further in the chapter to see the results here, what happened. goes in there, and I have the verse here, but I'm going to read it for you in verse 30. Look at verse 30. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. <laughs> what a wonderful thing that is. The priest makes atonement, not you. Atonement meant the covering of sin back then, to hide one's sin. And the priest made atonement to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Every thought, every sin, and it's erased from God's holy record book. And that's what happened once a year for Israel and their national standing with God. Uh, the priest did it. He made atonement for them with the blood to clean them from all their sins before the Lord. And so we see uh, uh, th this picture here. We can... Maybe use this one here. That's what happened, basically, on Yom Kippur. Now, you and I know that's simply a picture. It's a picture of the reality. We don't do that today. Because we have the reality in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you go back to Hebrews, please. Keep something here. I'm coming back to Leviticus 16. But go to Hebrews 9, where I had you, please. Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, look at verse 12, a powerful verse here, Hebrews 9 and verse 12. Hebrews 9 and verse 12. It says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Speaking of Jesus Christ our Lord. By his own blood, not some now the precious blood of the Son of God, he entered in once, not every year like the high priest did. He just had to do it once, or it was a perfect sacrifice. And it was his own blood, that life blood of the holy man, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And that holy place was not the temple on earth, for Hebrews 9.24 says he entered not into uh, uh, the, the holy places made with hands. <laughs> They're the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so there the Lord Jesus goes into the real holiest, in heaven itself. And he goes, it doesn't say with his own blood, but by it. On the merits of his own blood, he goes in there, and what he obtains for us is not just yearly redemption, eternal redemption. One sacrifice for sins forever, teaches Hebrews 10.12. So today, the reality, we don't need a priest going into some holy place. That was only the picture, but this will take you to Christ who shed his blood on the cross. He was buried, on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And he's gone into the holiest of the real uh, uh, mercy seat and uh, uh, ark up there. You'll see it in the book of Revelation. Is appearing in the presence of God as our Savior on his own blood. Uh, so that's what we have today. If we want to be saved today, don't make the mistake of the children of Israel. They walked up to that ark so excited, they lifted the lid, and there was no blood on it. And there was no priest they bypassed the sacrifice, they bypassed God's priest, and they dropped over dead. And so they said, the survivors, who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? You can't make it without this double combination. In the blood, Christ is your sacrifice. In His resurrection, Christ is your high priest. And you're living for you. Come through Him, and you'll be saved. Now, as the Bible talks about this, and talks about where the blood was sprinkled on this... Thank God it's called a mercy seat. No wonder it's called a mercy seat. Children of Israel found cleansing us from sin and, and, and mercy. Uh, thank God it's not called a judgment seat, uh, but it is called a mercy seat. With that in mind, I want to take you further on this for a few minutes to chapter 3 of Romans. So if you go to uh, Romans chapter 3, please. Romans 3. And talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ here in chapter 3 and is the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. I just want to take you to verse 25. Uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. Speaking of Christ Jesus, here's what verse 25 says. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. God's righteous. He just doesn't say, well, I'll forget about your sins and drop my standards. No, your sins have to be punished. But Christ has been set forth as a propitiation on the basis of his bloodshed, and the merits of that was presented to God in heaven's holiest, we learned. So Christ is a propitiation. It's a word, you know, propitiation, we don't use a lot today. When's the last time you used it? You know, <laughs> you know what it means? To satisfy one's righteous anger to satisfy an offense righteously, to propitiate. Martin Luther, you know how he translated this word? Mercy seat. Whom God has set forth as a propitiatory or a mercy seat. We read tonight in Hebrews chapter 9, we read verse 5 if you remember, which said there was a mercy seat over the ark. Did you know that word mercy seat in Hebrews 9, 5 that we read tonight is the exact same word as propitiation here. In Romans 3, 25. Propitiation is elsewhere in the Bible. It's a slightly different Greek word. But here's the exact Greek word. It's translated either mercy seat 
or propitiatory uh, propitiation. It's a place where God is satisfied. And what has satisfied God for your sins and my sins is not penance, is not church attendance, is not giving to the poor, is the blood of the Lord Jesus. Look at the picture. Children can take it in. <laughs> they didn't bring money in here. They didn't bring promises to keep in here. They brought the blood, and, they, and he died not. And so propitiation to satisfy. I think to the young people last night we were trying to illustrate propitiation. I'll do it again. It means to satisfy one for, for their righteous anger for damages. Uh, the example goes something like this. You have a fancy car, I don't know, uh, uh, a Mercedes convertible, you know. And I say, boy, that'd be nice to take out on a 210, you know. I've never driven one. And I sneak out during the refreshment time. I see your keys on the table there. And I take off and I crash into a telephone pole and demolish it. Airbags save me. And I come back, they tow the thing, and it's just totaled. Do you, do you have a right to be upset? You do. You, you, you've been violated. Great damages, whatever it's worth, 70000 whatever. And I walk in, I say, hey, man, dude, I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. Are you propitiated? Are you satisfied? I say, hey, I'm glad you're sorry, but there's a serious damages here. Oh, I say, I think I get it. Uh, there has to be restitution. Yeah, absolutely. I say, you know, this laser point is cool. It's green, you know. We're even. Yeah, I gave you something. It came far short of satisfied, of propitiation, propitiating you. People give God baptism and promises, and I give this money and so on, and I sing in the choir. That doesn't, it's giving God something, but it's nothing He wanted. You know what satisfies God? Look at the picture. The blood of His Son the Lord Jesus. He has been set forth as a propitiation. Now what do I have to do to satisfy God to do penance? The answer is nothing. It's already been done 2,000 years ago. God is propitiated. You know, no wonder Isaiah 53.11 says, Thou shalt see the travail, the agony of his soul, and shall be satisfied. Satisfaction. Satisfactory sacrifice. The mercy seat where they were clean from all their sins because God was satisfied in picture form with the blood of the spotless animal. The law that they broke is here, God's here, but in between the two is blood. And today when you come to Christ and not your own penance and not your own, I do this, I didn't do that, uh, uh, and look to Christ, not look to yourself, so he'll save you because he's satisfied in the Lord Jesus. That's all I got to say when I realized I didn't have to do nothing. Christ died for my sins, and that's the answer. So that's what happened on Yom Kippur, pointing us to the mercy seat, which is the propitiation that our Lord Jesus accomplished. Same word, okay? Uh, so, so this is the propitiation what Christ accomplished on the cross. Now with that in mind, go back with me please to Leviticus 16 one more time. Leviticus 16 one more time. And there's the verse we, verse we read in verse 30. The, on that day, the priest shall make an atonement for you to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. The priest did it. So the question is this. The Jewish person that day, on Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, what did they do? What was their role? Uh, it says the priest did it. The high priest alone. Uh, did they have to make any special promises or pilgrimage or whatever? Well, it tells you here. Uh, look here in chapter 16 of Leviticus. And uh, we'll go to verse 29. Verse 29. 
And this shall be the statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. Kind of illustrated up here. Here's the one who did all the work, the high priest. You didn't do any work. You just sat there and rusted. You afflicted your soul of contrition, and, and some might even believe it was fasting. You, weren't, you didn't even eat. You did nothing. You, you did no work at all. There was a contrition of the soul, but there's nothing you did physically. Huh, no work at all. You say, how, did, how, Mr. Jewish believer, did you get your sins clean before the Lord? What did you do? He said, I didn't do anything. Just a hard attitude. He said, I'll tell you who did it. He did it. He, he, he sacrificed it. He brought the blood in. Uh, he made atonement for me that day. And that is a picture in the law itself of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel. You all know it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Huh? For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. It's not of works. Then there's Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. You know, when you see this, their role was no work. It was all His. You take the focus on what I can do for God, do what He did for me. In the Lord Jesus, you're close to salvation. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, thou shalt be saved. So we see the gospel pictured here. Even in the people doing no work, it all is the work of God's priest who now we have a great high priest huh? who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. That's our high priest. He died for my sins. He rose again. He's now in that priesthood office. And uh, when I come to him, he will save me when I put my faith in him. Well, that's how Christ fulfills what is called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. But having said that, I want to go into part B tonight to continue how to come into God's presence. We saw how the high priest did, but nobody else did after Moses died. So go with me now to one of the most radical verses in the New Testament. If you're coming from a Jewish mind, this would be absolutely radical, okay? Uh, let's go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, please. And now he's writing to these believers in the Lord Jesus. He had talked about his sacrifice and Christ being our priest. And then he says something that's absolutely heresy to a Jewish mind under law. And that's verse 19. Verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Huh. Never mind a high priest now. He has just told the Christian brotherhood, men and women, to have boldness, confidence, to come into the holiest, that forbidden area. And he doesn't say elders or special priests or special theologians. The family name for Christians, who can enter in? Brothers. It's brothers and sisters, the children of God. Every believer now can do only what <laughs> happened on a very limited action in the Old Testament. You're just not told you can go offer a sacrifice. Or you can come and serve God. That's all wonderful. But you can come into the holiest. You know, we need to ask a question. If that is true, on what authority do I come? How much education do I need? What degree do I need? On what authority do I, how dare I come into the holiest? 
which uh, first of all is God's heaven, God's presence, and then his uh, church is called the temple of God, which is holy places in 1 Corinthians 3. How do I function in this church connected to heaven? How dare I do that? You know, and, and, and what's the authority? Well, it goes on to tell you here. Look here at verse 19 again. Verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the flesh, that is to say his, through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's all tabernacle language we learned. Did you notice the gospel there? I come by the blood of Jesus. I come through the veil, which is, well, which is the, 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 the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, the body that he sacrificed for me. That's how I come. And uh, it's a new and living way. It's brand new. He's a living. He's a high priest. And I can come with full assurance. I don't have to have a guilty conscience because his blood cleanses from all sin. I've been made clean by the gospel. Gospel washed, bodies washed with pure water. I can come on these gospel truths and I'll know that I'll die not. Coming into the holiest. A lot of people think, you know, I want to get to heaven. I want to get there, and I can just come to God anytime I want. Well, it says you can't do that unless you have the authority, unless you're qualified. You say, we want to get to heaven. Do you realize how holy heaven is? You know, some places from a distance, they look very attractive. When we fly into the Bahamas to do ministry and look down at that aqua blue water, I say, man, I can't wait till we land and get in that aqua blue water. And we land and the fishermen take us out fishing and uh, my wife will jump in, but I don't because I see barracuda and sharks and what was very nice from the sky, it's kind of fearsome close up, okay? I want to tell you heaven's something like that. Go with me just for a minute to the revelation of Jesus Christ chapter 4, okay? Revelation chapter 4. Let's, let's see a vision of heaven. Where God dwells. And I'm putting an artist facsimile up here of Revelation chapter 4. And looking at verse 2. Revelation 4 and verse 2. It says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He sees a throne, and he sees one sitting on the throne. Verse 3, and he that sat upon it was like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. So he sees these glistering stones and a rainbow, but he sees more than that. Verse 4, and round about the throne were twenty and four seats, or four and twenty seats or thrones. And upon the seats or thrones I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed with raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. In pure white raiment, there they are sitting around this throne. And then look at verse 5. And out of the throne proceedeth lightnings, and thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so these lamps burning of fire, and lightning bolts, and thunderings. Have you ever been in a violent storm? It's not a, it's not a pleasant place to be. And this is heaven. And bowing down before Him day and night are living creatures that have faces like lion and a calf and an ox and a man. And look what they're saying in verse 8. Revelation 4 and verse 8. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about Him. 
And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. He's eternal. While I'm preaching tonight, they don't rest day and night. We rest. They don't. And they're saying, holy, 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 you know, separate from sin, consecrated to righteousness. Thunderings and lightnings and people clothed in white, burning lamps and jewels and all that. And Christ shines in this, as the sun in His brilliance, it says. And these living creatures, with these, some of them have faces of beast in that. And we say, I can't wait to get there. Think again. <laughs> You're told to enter the holiest? You better have authority. You better have qualifications. And that is the power of the gospel of Christ. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Through the veil that is His flesh, His sacrifice. Uh, it, 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 we enter in. For you see... My authority is the gospel, what happened on the cross. And he's now resurrected as my high priest. For on that cross, something, again, radical happened. Take you to another picture. There's the veil. Shut door. Stay out. You know what Matthew 27 records? Verse 50 says, When Jesus cried with a loud voice, he yielded up the ghost or dismissed his spirit. He died. The second he intentionally dismissed his spirit, our Lord Jesus, you know what Matthew 27, 51 says? I know you know it. It says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks did rend. Uh, and the unseen hand took that veil, and this was the temple veil now, and just split it, and it was open from top to bottom. At the cross, the second, he gave up his spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, if a shut door says stay out, what do you think an open door says? See, an open bathroom door, I can go in. <laughs> you can come in. And now we have an open door through the veil, through His sacrifice. The way is open that, that we can be cleansed from our sin, bodies washed in pure water, <laughs> uh, uh, through the blood of Christ, not through uh, 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 some man's way. Be careful of religion. You know what they do? They sew this veil up again. And they'll sew it with professional threads. You have to be ordained. You have to have this. You have to do that. No, no. The cross of Christ has opened it. <laughs> and that blood is powerful enough to give me qualification. I'm so clean in God's eyes and washed from my sins that I can come into the holiest men and women believers by the blood of Jesus. Having therefore, brother, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Who can enter in? Brother? Common belief. Something unheard of. It's, it's on the basis of the gospel. You touch this and you touch the gospel. Now I want to close with these thoughts. What happens when I enter in? Why do I enter in? I enter into the holiest. Well, what does it mean to enter into the holiest? Uh, there's another picture there. Uh, what does it mean to enter into the holiest? You say, well, I think it means to pray. That was the altar of incense. We learned that this morning. The, prayers, the incense are the prayers of the saints. That's the altar of incense. It obviously doesn't mean we repeat the work of Yom Kippur, does it? We don't have to go out and shed blood. He did that once for all. It's eternal redemption. So you don't have to reenact Yom Kippur and give another sacrifice to God. Well, then what in the world am I doing in this holiest? And I submit to you the Old Testament will give us a clue answered in the New Testament. That until Moses died, Aaron's brother, he had access to the holiest, and he didn't sacrifice there. And I want to show you what happened there. So let's go to see the parable first to Exodus chapter 25. 
book of Exodus 25. Here's brethren, and we can enter in. But what are we entering in for? <laughs> it's not to get saved. We're already saved. We're called brethren. It doesn't mean prayer for the incense meant that. It's, it, it was one sacrifice, so it doesn't mean reenacting a Yom Kippur. So going here to Exodus 25, you'll see Moses, Aaron's brother, had unique privilege. He talked to God face to face, so to speak. Bible says, face-to-face. -face. Uh, verse 22. I have you in Exodus 25 and verse 22. Exodus 25, uh, verse 22. Here's what he tells Moses. Well, I'll read 21 also, okay? 21. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that was the law that I shall give thee. Now, speaking of the ark with its lid, the mercy seat, here it is, the propitiatory, the mercy seat with the cherubim, guardians. It goes on to say in verse 22, And there will I meet with thee, that's singular. There I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. It was the meeting place with God. I'll meet with you, Moses, and I'll commune, and you'll have the word speak, for that's what it means. If we had sacrifice in the courtyard and service in the holy place, we have speaking, the communion of God to our hearts in the holiest where God will reveal himself to us. He said, you know, everything I'm going to tell the children of Israel, God didn't tell them directly. They got it second-handed. I'll tell you, Moses, you're, you're listening to me. I'm going to speak to you, and then you'll tell the children of Israel. So the children of Israel got it secondhand. But Moses got it firsthand. All that I give thee in commandment to the children of Israel, there I will meet with thee, there will I commune or speak with thee. It is a place of hearing God and knowing God. That's what happened there as far as Moses is concerned. Uh, the people couldn't do it, so they had to have a professional man do it. You know, many think that way today. This ordained man, he, he'll, pre, he'll tell me what God says, but I don't know what he means. That was then. <laughs> this is now. It's different now. Further on this speaking thing here. Go with me to Exodus 30, where we were today. Exodus chapter 30, okay? This meeting with God. Exodus 30. And uh, verse 6. Exodus 30 and verse 6. Exodus 30, verse 6. And thou shalt put it before the veil that is by the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with thee. There it is again. Ark of the Testament, mercy seat. Moses, there I will meet with thee, you. Meeting place with God. Look further in chapter 30 at verse 36. Verse 36 of chapter 30 of Exodus. Speaking of the incense, they were to beat. And he says, thou shalt beat some of it very small and put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation, where I will meet with thee, it shall be most holy, unto you most holy. A place of meeting. Now let's go to one more on this. It's very helpful. The book of Numbers, chapter 7. We're going to go down to the last verse once you get to number 7. And the last verse happens to be verse number 89. <laughs> Long chapter. Numbers, chapter 7. Going down to the very last verse, which is verse 89 of number 7. And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him 
from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spake unto him. Why, it's kind of clear. It's a meeting place with God where God speaks to you. And he heard the will of God, which he transferred to the people. One man only had access to that voice of God back then. One man. And that when he died, that was it. That was it. And they had the law written. And so a place of speaking here, a place of meeting with God, uh, we have at the holy place. Now, it's important to see what comes next here. Remember, whatever I tell you, you're going to go tell the others. And in this case, what God was telling Moses, he was to tell his brother Aaron, the high priest. God could have told Aaron directly, but he didn't. He told the man that was in there, and he would transfer to Aaron. And look what he was told. Look what God spoke to him, which is chapter 8 of Numbers and verse 1. And what we're going to see here, it concerns that lampstand we were talking about that was to burn. And this is kind of inauguration day for the lampstand. It's going to be lit for the first time. Hmm. So how will it get lit? Well, God could have just said, let there be light. It's lit. <laughs> you know, easy for God. Not how he does it. Moses going in, hearing God speaking to him. Then he comes out and says to Aaron, chapter 8 and verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron, and say unto him, When thou lightest the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light over against the candlestick. And Aaron did so. He lighted the lamps thereof, over against the candlestick, as the Lord commanded Moses. He comes out, and he says, Aaron, you're to light the lamps. God wants them lit. And so Aaron lighted the lamps, and there would be light in the house of God. All those gold and silver and colors, you can see it now. The glories revealed because somebody was in the presence of God and they came out and shared that revelation with somebody else. And you end up with light in the house of God and all those glories that we've been enjoying are revealed uh, through this lampstand as we learned yesterday. That's how God chose to light it. Somebody in His presence, what He learned, He came out and He ended up with light. Now that's the picture. We don't have the lampstands today and so on. But what we've already learned is that we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Is there anything in the New Testament that would answer that now God reveals to every believer His Word? Not just some special holy man. And i got to go hear him if I want to know it. There is. The reality. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at 1 Corinthians and chapter 2. Written to the Corinthian church now with Jew and Gentile believers, former sinners, you know. And here's what he's going to write them. I'll break in here at verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. He says, but as it is written, verse 9, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. He said, I guess we'll never know. Hasn't entered into our heart. First, it, the teaching doesn't stop there. Uh, you, you can't learn it through ear, you know, observation, uh, 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 things like that, uh, eye gate, uh, rationalization to ear gate, emotion, that the heart of man. You can't, you can't know it that way, but there's a way you can know it. Look at verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by His Spirit. 
For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. God's revealed them unto us by His Spirit. When you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes into you because you're cleansed. And He begins to reveal the deep things of God. Some of you might remember that before you were saved, this book was kind of a mystery. I don't even like it. All of a sudden, you're saved. You know, this young girl was telling us this the other night back home. Well, I see it. I understand it now. It's the Spirit of God. He's revealing to each believer. Look what it goes on to say here in verse 11. For, for what man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man which is in him? That's an analogy, you know. What man knoweth the things of man except the spirit of man that's in him? Uh, you go to a goldfish who doesn't have a human spirit and tell him about your broken relationship and cry, and you're going to get no sympathy from the goldfish. <laughs> he doesn't have your spirit. Or on another level, we could say it this way. Only a man knows his own thinking because he has his own spirit. So if you would say, uh, uh, Mr. Preacher, uh, uh, I wonder what you're thinking about. Well, how would you ever know? You know what you're thinking, but, but I know because I have my spirit. And, and, but it goes on to say, that's the analogy, verse 11. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Man can't figure out God by scientific observation or anything else. Can't come to really know Him. It's only by the Spirit of God. So that verse 12 says this. This is wonderful. Now we, the believers, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. You can know God. You know, no wonder 1 John 5.20 says, We know the Son of God hath come and hath given us an understanding that we might know Him that is true. Oh, not only forgiveness of sins, an under, you can know your God. He reveals Himself through the Spirit. You can enter the holy place and through prayer and His Scriptures, He'll start to reveal His Word to you through the Spirit. And you'll see some of the beauties of God and the truths of God. <laughs> it goes on to say the natural man, without the unborn again man, he won't do it. Look, look at verse 14. And the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Natural man can't know the things. So you take a 70-year-old college professor who is not saved, and he won't be able to reveal the things of God to you where a 10-year-old child that knows the Lord Jesus will know more. Because one has the Spirit of God, the other doesn't. Okay, And so we see that God now, just, just not to one person, to every believer reveals himself. No wonder the chapter ends here. Uh, in verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. Fantastic here. So that every believer can get in the presence of God. Now you had one man doing it. He came out and gave all kind of, you know, the, the lampstand got lit. What, what if you have thousands of believers in the presence of God? They come out and share like maybe a local assembly, huh? hundred believers, you know? And there's freedom to share the brothers and the brothers and sisters during the week with each other. Do you see the dynamic of the light that could be shared? I mean, there's things that I share up here that aren't original with me. They're not. Sometimes my wife sees them and she tells me. She gets in the presence of God. Sometimes prisoners that are saved will write me. You know, they say the art of originality is concealing the source. And that's about all it is, you know? Uh, but a lot of thoughts I share seesaw. And other people are in the light. They're in the presence of God. And they come out and they share that light. And the light is lit, so to speak. 
And that's the beauty of a New Testament assembly. There's liberty uh, for more than one man. Just to say, here's what I heard from God, and I'm the professional, I'm telling you, that we can get into the presence of God. And the New Testament provides that format to do that. If you study the assembly in 1 Corinthians 14, it's a plurality of people involved, men leading the assembly. You know, if any man, if, when the, if you be gathered together in one place, when the whole church has come together in one place, every one of you hath a doctrine, a teaching, a psalm, etc. You may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, that all may be comforted. 1 Corinthians 14.31. The New Testament church, if you study 1 Corinthians 14, is designed on this dynamic that we have access to God and we can come and share that light and so to speak, to use a new age expression, a thousand points of light come together and how bright that would be, you know. Uh, uh, and so we see, uh, we have this privilege. So are we in His presence now? He's speaking to us, not some fresh new voice, but revealing the Word through His Spirit. The Lord told the seven churches, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And revealing it to us, and we can begin to take Him in and share with one another here. We can, we can come into the holiest uh, and expect God to give us an understanding of Himself and then be able to add it to the rest of the body and so on. Well, that, that's what we've learned here. Having therefore brethren, that's who enters in. Brothers and sisters now, not just some special man. Uh, how do we enter in? Well, we learned, didn't we? Uh, by the blood of Jesus, you know. Don't know where that went. There it is. Uh, it's by what he did on the cross, and he's our high priest. It's by the gospel, on the authority of the gospel, we enter in. And what happens when we enter in? Well, we discussed that a bit. Uh, hearing from God, revealing himself to your heart. And so tonight, not sacrifice tonight. Not service to God as important as that is. God speaking, communion with God. The gospel takes you that far. All pictured in the tabernacle, but the tabernacle came short because the veil wasn't open, was it? Couldn't bring one into the holiest, it says, the believer. But when Christ came, that's all changed, that we can enter in by the blood of Jesus. And so we close in prayer here, and we'll just leave that uh, picture up there. May God give you good understanding. Uh, there's a whole lot more, but we got to stop, okay? Uh, that's the structure. That's the basic. You can, everything else will kind of hang on that. But uh, may God take this parable and show you the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ that even affects the local church and all that's involved in this glorious, glorious gospel. Pictured for you first so we can grasp it. Let's just ask God's blessing in prayer. It's been nice to be with you. Our Holy Father, we're in thy presence. We're in thy presence through the Lord Jesus Christ, not through this his teachings or miracles, through his blood. And he's a high priest, and we have full assurance. And we're in thy presence lifting up this incense and thanksgiving and prayer. And we just pray the assembly here will uh, just be encouraged greater in these things and spend more time in the holiest and have more light, so to speak, to share. And that the assembly, that the, the format will not be sacrificed, it allows open time men to share what God has given them. Not only really in uh, worshiping, but, but in teaching also, the Bible teaches. And so we just pray that we'll understand the wisdom of the assembly that's built on the dynamic of the gospel. If there's any that aren't saved here tonight, may they see the full heartiness of saying, I'll just show up into heaven, God loves everybody. To, to walk into the holiest is a disaster, uh, lightnings and thunders. 
And yet, through the blood of Christ, they can be forgiven. Uh, they can stand. The answer, who can stand before this holy Lord God Father, is those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn in thy scriptures in Revelation, a whole group is standing in white, and the scripture tells us how. These are they which came out of great tribulation, having washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they're standing. And that can happen even tonight to a sinner. And so we commit this word in a way we can't do it humanly, to work in hearts to either edify, comfort, exhort, correct, uh, save in some cases. The word is able. And so we just commit the Spirit's working and ask thy blessing on uh, the effort the assembly made in these meetings, and they certainly will be blessed and edified in it, and you'll be glorified through it. And so we commit all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, with thanksgiving. Amen.